They're always listening. And dad was holding it up to him going, you mean like if I said Taco Bell, it would advertise for Taco Bell? Yes. I was like, yeah, and I don't want any. He goes, you don't want any Taco Bell? And I was like, no, <laughs> stop saying it. It gets eerie. I pick up like real weird I'm like, Black and Decker Weed Whacker. <laughs> I would sure love to have a Black and Decker Weed Whacker. <laughs> In five, four, three. Hey, everybody. This is Daniel. Oh, and this is Daniel. <laughs> and this is Carla. We are Hoosier Homicide, a true crime podcast by Hoosiers for Hoosiers or for anyone that doesn't know what a Hoosier is. Okay. Now, both of you speak into your microphone. Into your microphone. Into your microphone. Okay, go. Okay. Hi. Hi. <laughs> He licking you? It's he, like you have a giant cat sitting on your lap. Yeah, except the cat. The cat weighed 85 pounds. Exactly. He licking you. Boris loves me. We don't know why. We sent him over to play with Jimmy Dean Sausage today. Sausage? He's a very sweet little petite 10 pound, 1200 ounce <laughs> teacup pit bull. <laughs> Jimmy is tiny. You could just, that dog, you could just fly I have away. kicked him across the Possum. <laughs> the possum. He looks like he, a possum. He does he look does. like a possum. Maybe we should post a picture of him. Boris doesn't judge. Especially when he's like barking and stuff. Mm-hmm. Or if you've ever seen him growl at anything. Yeah, his teeth come out. I'm like, yeah. you ugly. You ugly, motherfucker. <laughs> like, I really think we should shave his tail. So he looks like a possum. Ah! So he looks like a possum. Uh. Maybe for Halloween. Yes. <laughs> Since I bought him a shark costume, he wouldn't keep it he on. He wouldn't keep it on. <laughs> the audacity. <laughs> oh, man. What have we been doing? Uh, I did a 5K yesterday. Yes. And you won a donut. And I won a donut. And I won a medal. <laughs> and I mean, everyone, he got a medal. medal. Everyone, a participation ribbon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you bought. That I, I, We paid for it. Okay. I got a shirt that I paid for. But our daughter was wearing the donut medal. <laughs> hey, have you guys seen that they're putting mozzarella sticks? They're using mozzarella sticks as crust on... It's we're not probably near. still stuffed crust. <laughs> they just cut them tinier. Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut. No, because they... Stop now seeing. we're going to get advertisements, advertisements That's what you're saying. Hut. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> That I get advertisements for Jimmy Dean Sausage because we refer to your dog as Jimmy, Jimmy Dean sausage. sausage. And dad goes, you need some Taco Bell? I had Taco Bell last night. Oh, that sounds good. Did you have huh? diarrhea this morning? Yes. Mm. <laughs> mm. At least you get a break. Like, I'll have it right away. I didn't, you know, I just got a Contrap Supreme. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, you know, I didn't go overboard. Mm-hmm. I didn't get like Cinestics or cheesy Fiesta potatoes or. We were over at his cousin's and I only had a little bit of food because I was like, I ain't about to get. IBS shits here. <laughs> I was like, I'll never hear the end of it. <laughs> These people would be merciless to me. That would be the exact bathroom. moment that our daughter would have needed to go to the bathroom yes, too. It's happened like she'd three be knocking times. on the door, but she would know what was going on and she would go in the other room and she would announce what you were doing. doing yes. Everyone needs but to But don't know. worry, you were among friends. Yes. <laughs> yes, we definitely were. Yeah. Um, what else did we talk about there? I'll think of things I want to say, and then I, like, blank. You don't write them down? Mm-mm. I don't think we need to do too much shit beforehand, because I think that's the stuff that kind of turns people off. 
No, it's, I put in numbers. I'm, We're just kidding. My voice turns people on. On all the time. <laughs> ready, Who's, ready. Okay. Who's people? Define people. There's, There's got to be at least one. one. Well, I'm sure <laughs> there is. There's ASMR a lot of, there's Actually, a lot of, a lot of cre- creeps in this world. A lot of times I answer the phone, then they're like, is this Matt? I'm like, no. no. <laughs> I am a woman. Oh, sorry. Can I talk to Matt? <laughs> <laughs> you still don't want to talk to me? No, they. I have a couple guys that I don't answer the phone for because they won't talk to me. <gasps> oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah like, I mm-hmm. do that. You won't answer the phone for a couple guys? No, if... If what's her nuts answers the phone, I'm like, I'll call back. Hey, that's another. St- that's worth doing, in my opinion. If so. Who answers the phone? <laughs> she knows what I'm talking. about. I know about. what he's talking about. Okay, I can't. I can't even describe like the level of strange because I don't. I don't understand it. Oh, call. Oh, okay. What? You don't get it. You no. don't have to get it. I don't have to. I'm okay with this. This is an A B. <laughs> conversation so see your way to the d mm-hmm. what boom <laughs> <laughs> see your way to the, the d. d i got that part i ID got that with a, a d with a d if you have enough people you can say this is an a b c d e conversation you can f yourself later <laughs> <laughs> have you ever been able to say that to anyone no <laughs> no hmm. just keep it in mind Okay, it's, it's I'll put it in my there. back pocket mm-hmm. as a good insult. Yeah, yep, yep. But it's our daughter tried to get Nina here. Come hold the end of my spoon. <laughs> she said, that to her. <laughs> and I was like, "That's Why? the sweetest, creepiest thing I've ever heard." <laughs> I don't know what she was doing. She wanted mom to come hold her spoon for her. Just the end of it. Just the end. She goes, "Come hold the end of my spoon." Oh, we started. Ah! Doing- oh, sorry, oh, Boris, Boris, go lay down. He doesn't know how to cuddle. He can't. He's too big. <laughs> His idea That's of- not true. He does with me. Come here. He just like for me, he just wants to stand over me. We've looked it up before. It What's is up like with this? a dominant Why do you want to sit on thing, her? The standing over you. I I don't threaten oh, his dog. Oh, oh, you heard his feelings. He's on the little mini mouse couch <laughs> with all the blankets. That's okay, stay there. Yep, that's good. We started doing some home construction and we're I just wanted to paint the hallway. That's all I was gonna do was paint the hallway. And it's a small hallway. But then, like, mom got her hands in it, and mom painted the hallway. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But then, like, Daniel and I were talking about all this stuff, and I come around the corner, and he's, like, tugging on the wall that has paint on <laughs> That could have gone, you shouldn't have paused so long after you said the word tugging. tugging. <laughs> on, on the wall that has, you know, the 70s paneling that has been painted. We're not heathens, usually. <laughs> it don't I, I so I come, it looked bad it's just outdated well we yeah so he's like tugging on it and I'm like oh man like what are you starting well that shit you want to take paneling off you got to take the baseboard off and you got to take the frame around the back sliding glass door off and then we couldn't get it off around some of the outlets because the outlet box I mean and she really out left out a big book, part of the conversation wouldn't come off behind the bookshelf so dad had to cut the paneling off <laughs> you see you see what's happening here yeah. We tried to fill oh, the wood yeah, the paneling doors. first to I was see like, how maybe it, so this will it work. didn't. Okay. Yeah, it didn't. Okay. And Daniel that was 100% Danielle's to, idea. To fill the groups. Yeah. I, My idea was to rip it off. That seemed to be the better <laughs> of the two ideas. The only reason is because once we tore off the crown molding, you could see down into the wall that it wasn't really crown molding. It was quarter round. Well, some idiots yeah. had put up there and called it crown molding. I think we've done it before. so no the only problem was going to be if it was glued to the drywall then you would have pulled off big chunks of drywall with the paneling and then you would have had 
big problem. You could see all the nail hole. So yeah, it, those so. mostly just projects for dad. They just were calling like, him up. Like we're gonna put paneling over this perfectly normal. That's driveway. what we, it is. They because it came with the house. And mom was like, oh, they ordered it this way. Like we want the paneling. Hook us up with the fake. But it wasn't originally green was it no no someone else painted it green and i put up with it because we had like Mima's decorations from her their house on Flickr. i have them and they went well on the green wall so i just was fine with it for yeah, five years four years five years <laughs> almost five years but now we're gonna get stickers that say live laugh love Motherfucker, no we're <laughs> Wait, not what's the other one something whale penis it's, it was blood semen dead elephants i think <laughs> Or plasma semen that it, I mean, it's not important because I'm not going to put that on my wall, but I would over live, laugh, love. I would live, put, laugh, love. I would put that on my wall over that. And people would be real confused. And I'm like, listen, you just don't understand. Like, do you listen to our podcast? I'm like, nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, you and a lot of people. Okay. <laughs> you and a lot of people. Also, speaking of construction, I guess dad still has a hole in his bathroom floor. That she drops the golf balls down. Yeah, so the hole is still there, no, but I now they covered it up. The hole is still there, but the drywall oh. is on the ceiling in the basement, so, so the balls don't fall through. But Dad was going to take a shower, and he came back down, and he started to like undo a wire hanger. I was like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "I dropped my soap in the hole." <laughs> <laughs> it was just this like little hole next to the new shower they put in. That <laughs> <laughs> and like, he said he did like one of those like cartoon like trying to grab yeah, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it was like with mom left it for a long time because our kid would take all the golf balls dad has and drop them down and the watch them hit the floor in the basement and bounce the funny around. part about it is you everyone can exactly well us three we can, can picture, picture his, the expression on his <laughs> face drop this drop this open <laughs> I dropped my soap in the hole, and, w- and it was—it's a small hole, and, and I was like, "Why don't you just?" He like- was very careful not to he bend over right the- away. He had <laughs> bad experience. He probably uses the cheapest soap that there is. Too. I don't know, but I was like, "Why don't you just wait?" Or your kid, kid is reach, there. We reach your hand down there for you. Your kid could reach the hand down there. She's has a small enough hand, and he was like, "No, I'll just get it now. I'll just get it now." I actually didn't check back with him if he got it or Maybe not. Maybe you should text him. Check dad. <laughs> yes, did you get your soap out? <laughs> I will text him. Did you get your soap out of the hole? (laughs) (laughs) I think he did. I kind of forget. Yeah, because now she drops the golf balls down the handrail. And I didn't didn't realize she had gone upstairs. Like, we were leaving. It's a tri-level. So we were leaving the bottom. And, like, all of a sudden you hear this loud, like, rolling sound. And then bing, 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 bing. And I didn't realize (laughs) she was up there rolling golf balls down. And it scared me. (laughs) I was like, what are you doing? All right, we'll wait for his response. Maybe we should. Oh, no, you said this case was very interesting. It is. Well, you'll like it. Oh, okay. Jeez. I asked if it was about food, and you said no. No, it's not about food. And I said, well, what could be better than food? Let's say our segue will be, okay, your brother and your parents are traveling, and you said- Oh, here's a traveling one. Yeah. No, no. Okay. I got a traveling one. My dad, my brother, and my mom are traveling somewhere, and it's business-related. My brother took his fucking golf clubs with him mm-hmm. and the whole time was saying, probably going to lose, they'll probably lose my fucking golf clubs. And I was thinking, you're going to speak this into existence mm-hmm. because that is the power your negative, your negativity has over your life. Yes, it does. And guess what? It happened. His golf clubs went on the wrong plane. 
(laughs) (laughs) How long did it take for him to... I don't think they have them yet, do they? Huh? Well, they were go- they had to go through customs. Yeah. So like oh. so But we were saying you're his contact like emergency and it should be like, you know, Delta or South or whatever contacted me and said that they've found your clubs but they're damaged and though the insurance you that we have is only like two hundred dollars. So he knew better though. Yeah, he would have known. He knew better. Yeah. Now I probably could have got away with just telling him that uh since I was with the emergency contact, they couldn't get a hold of you guys. So they called me and said that your golf clubs were uh, crushed tragically. Tragically. Dang. <laughs> Dang you. If I could, if I really could, I'd if I could get anything done, I'd say, could you guys get them, take them out, and show pictures of you practicing your golf swings, Swing. <laughs> and then send them to me? <laughs> okay. And he said he did not get his bar soap. Oh, what brand is it? Ivory? Probably Irish Spring. Irish Spring. That's not a bad one. I like that no, one. No, but it's not. I mean, <laughs> no, I didn't get my soap back. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I just said, oh, I said to try. Your, your, have your kid try to get it. Yeah, she'll come on and have the kid get this. <laughs> I put my hand down a hole. <laughs> <laughs> she'll say just about anything. <laughs> okay, we were talking about airplanes, though. Airplane. That's the connection. Okay. Everyone loves to travel on an airplane. Used to be a luxury thing. Now it's not. <laughs> no. No, it's not a luxury. Hey, no. It's the fastest way to get from point A to point B. What's the worst connecting flights? What's the worst flight you've ever been on? Uh, uh, Budapest to Toronto was 10 hours long. Yeah. Was it the worst just because it was long? Or no. Uh, there was no on-flight entertainment. The charger thing, like portal didn't, or the little plug didn't work. So my headphones died halfway through, so I couldn't listen to music. Uh-huh. And then um, it was hot, and there were people running around, and it was just, it was awful. It was awful. Mm-hmm. And then when you guys went to Ireland, mom took Advil, Colden, or no, Advil. She took Benadryl. Yeah, which and she's allergic pain. to Benadryl. Yeah, so she was like all jittery as fuck for I that know, whole I was flight. passed out no, literally the entire time. No, because you took Advil PM. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were passed out. Yeah. yeah. The worst flight I ever had was the shortest flight I ever had. Well, that's good. It was here to Detroit. Which is like thirty five minutes. It was right after we started dating. Mm, I, I hadn't been this. I hadn't been on an airplane in like over ten years, and so I didn't know when I got on that I was going to get airsick. Oh, oh! Now you do the now I know. Yeah. Oh yeah, now I get now yeah. I get the Dramamine patch. I mean, if I go somewhere and we're going to be on roller coasters, I'll wear a Dramamine patch because I just get motion sick real easily. Blech. Uh, you know, she made me watch Final Destination before We've I got on the plane. Yes. Yeah. We talked about this. And yes. now I realize the memory is that we're in a hotel room. So you could have left and gone to the lobby. Yeah, I was 14. So uh, that's frowned <laughs> upon. <laughs> upon. Anyways, this will make you feel better. On Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971, what happened? Uh, D.B. Cooper. Yes! Yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> and they're actually... Uh, I, I'm very impressed that you actually knew the date. Yeah. yep. Yeah. She likes D.B. Cooper. I'm oddly, like, very scared of it. I, I, think, I don't know why. I don't know if it's because it's, like, an unsolved thing, that it's just one of it's those, like... unsolved, and the sketch is creepy, yeah. and just everything about it like doesn't make sense. And apparently, planes be getting hijacked constantly in the early 1970s. Like it was a thing; it was almost guaranteed to happen to you if you traveled frequently. I just want to know. I want to know who he is and what happened. Well, I'm about to tell you who he is and what happened. 
Nobody knows who he is. You don't know that I don't know have the answer at the end of the stack of papers. I watched a four-hour documentary and they didn't tell me. So, <laughs> what year was the documentary? I don't know. Okay, see, got to watch one from the latest. You know, I can't smell like onions. Okay, <laughs> there's a lot of onions on that sandwich. <laughs> okay, so we know what it is. A middle-aged man carrying a black attache case approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. Got it? Got it. He identified himself as what? D.B. Cooper. No. Dan Cooper. (laughs) Dan Cooper. Oh, okay. And used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on flight 305, a 30-minute trip north to Seattle. So a whopping 30-minute flight. Can you even buy a plane ticket with cash? Not anymore. I don't know. Can you? No. Everything's done online. No. Yeah. Yeah. Or if even if you called, you'd have to give a debit or credit card number. I mean, if you showed up, I mean, you can show up and try to buy a ticket at the counter, but I don't know if you could. You might be able to pay cash. I mean, you have to give them your driver's license. Mm, You're not getting yeah. on the plane without a driver's license. So, so maybe I'm sure so they this, would take yeah. You could just walk up and call yourself whatever name you wanted and they'd go, okay. And so like make Hell, fake name. Fucking Ted Bundy got on the airplane. Yes. I was like, okay. Oh, you know, especially 9-11 changed a lot. Yeah, so and then this changed a lot of stuff, too, but even more so. But okay, he paid how much for the ticket? 30 bucks. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with (laughs) price is right. Twenty eight. Twenty eight fifty. Price is right. Twenty dollars. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but like, you walk up $20 cash to buy a ticket. Like, that is so fucking cheap. But I think I was listening to Sinister Hood. Nowadays, your bag can't get on the plane for 20 bucks. No. Mm-mm. No. Yeah. Unless um, you go to Southwest where bags fly free. Unless <laughs> they they're just... overweight. <clears throat> if anyone from Southwest is listening to this, I'll take a round trip from three people to here to Orlando. Lando. Yep. So yeah, I was listening to Sinisterhood and one other like Parcast Network, Killer Knowledge. I think is what it was. Those are the two things I listened to. A lot of this is Wikipedia, but there were like three hundred sources in Wikipedia. So feel free to scroll through that shit. And it was twenty bucks, so it sounds really cheap. But then at the time, it was closer to like one hundred and twenty-five dollars. So like what we would pay, like okay, one hundred twenty-five bucks for a flight. ticket. Yeah. Well, that's like, a one way. And it was a 30-minute flight, too. So yeah. then it becomes more expensive. Like, that's not even that's 30 bucks for, or 20 bucks <laughs> for a 30-minute flight. So he got his ticket north to Seattle. Cooper boarded the airplane, a Boeing 727, and took seat, multiple choice seats. Either it was 18C, 18E, or 15D. There's no way to know. It sounds like a scantron. <laughs> oh, man. Haven't used the letter C in a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's always C, right? And but it, basically the rear of the passenger cabin. I think how many people can fit on this thing? A seven twenty seven is it like thirty some people? No, I think probably more than that. I'm not a sure. Seven twenty seven. Yeah, Boeing twenty seven. A Boeing seven twenty seven. He was a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid forties, wearing a business suit with a black tie and white shirt. He ordered a drink. What did he order? Orange juice. Nope. A- uh, uh, scotch on the rocks. Bourbon and soda, because you were the closest. <laughs> While the flight was taking off, and flight 305, approximately one-third full, departed Portland on schedule at 2.50 p.m. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaffner, which sounds 
<laughs> but she was just the flight attendant. Um, there's they they can do up to like 190. Okay, it wasn't that many people. He handed a note to the flight attendant sitting nearest to him in a jump seat attached to the door, you know, which mm. sounds not safe. And she assumed that the note contained a lonely businessman's phone number. Like, I think you're pretty. Here's, here's take my number. Like, that's it. She was like, Here. she was like, oh, okay. And dropped it into her purse. And it's like, and that was, and he's like, oh, man, I need you to read huh. that. Hugh, Hugh Johnson. <laughs> hmm. So he has to get, it. he looked, he leaned forward and was like, miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. <laughs> it's like, oh, so you weren't hitting on me? It's like no, like oh okay. <laughs> well, you just told me you could just told me the bomb thing. Just tell me he was trying to be debonair, but instead of being debonair, De he was a deboner. <laughs> <Yeah, debonair. laughs> <laughs> the note was printed in neat all capital letters with a felt tip pen, and its exact wording is unknown because Cooper later reclaimed it. But Florence recalled that the note said that Cooper had a bomb in his briefcase. After she read the note, Cooper told her to sit beside him. And Florence did so. I mean, you would, because I would assume he also had a gun, considering they don't scan you for anything and you walk on a plane. And like, oh, for all I know, you have a meth kit in that bag, too. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to sit wherever you tell me to. He, she, okay, he opened his bag for her to look into it. And there was like eight red cylinders with wires and insulation and a battery. But I think in reality, bombs like TNT and whatnot, like it's not bright red cylinders like it is in the movies or cartoons. Like that's flares. So it was probably automotive flares is what he had in his bag but most likely was not a real bomb and when dad was calling dad can you build a bomb yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean depending on your definition of bomb yeah it was just a yeah, pipe bomb like uh we all learned how to make a turn a house into a bomb, bomb. right yes right. there's a lot of science in that i never yeah. wanted to make a bomb i just wanted to know how no. <laughs> Okay. After closing the briefcase, he stated his demands: two hundred thousand in negotiable American currency, which is something odd. Like, wouldn't Americans say that? Like, I need American currency. It's like, well, we're in America, so that's yeah, that would sound like they were flying to Canada. Or something. Yeah, four parachutes, two primary, and two reserve, and a fuel truck, and a partridge, and a, and a pear tree. Good, a I'm fuel... not the only one that thought that. <laughs> <laughs> a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Florence conveyed Cooper's instructions to the pilot in the cockpit, and when she returned, Cooper was wearing what? A dress. Sunglasses. Sunglasses. Like, he forgot to put them on. Like, ah, oh, fuck. She's gotten a real good look in my face now. She thought I was hitting on her. So I'll put these shades on. So, and then the pilots, I don't know if the pilots had had their planes hijacked before because this was so common or not, where it's just like, again? <laughs> <laughs> well, if they said again, then I would assume that it, this is not the first time. No, I don't know. I'm making that I'm, up. Whatever documentary I watched, <laughs> it they interviewed the pilot and the stewardess. She was like, I was just doing my job. Yeah, like they, I think he, they what, said he was real polite and chill and just like, okay. I was just like, that's badass. Yeah. I would be a little freaked out. She, I think she just was like, okay, I'll do it. Well, at least you're not hitting on me now. Yeah. The pilot, William Scott. <laughs> would have been better if it was michael scott but it's not uh contacted seattle tacoma airport air traffic control which in turn informed local and federal authorities the 36 other passengers were given false information that their arrival in seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty i don't want my plane to have any mechanical difficulties minor or otherwise northwest orient's president donald nyrop nyrop either or Authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. 
The aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to mobilize emergency personnel. So, like, no one's fighting him or anything. Like, no one's trying to, like, take him down or anything like that. It's just like, all right, man. This is how you want to get down with it. Okay. You know, they're all smoking, too, on that flight. Uh, Oh, (laughs) yeah. yeah. I don't know when that became illegal to smoke on airplanes. Not soon enough. Mm -mm. Yeah. Flight attendant Tina Mucklow recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. At one point, he remarked, looks like Tacoma down there as the aircraft flew above it. And he recognized a military base. So he saw like, and that's actually kind of hard to do to spot stuff from the air and go, I know what that is. I always look for the track and I never find it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I never find it. Florence described him as calm, polite, and well-spoken. Tina said he, was, he wasn't he was nervous, she told investigators. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. He ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his drink tab, and offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. I think he also tipped the stewardess, too. Like, he's not being a dick about it. I was like, because they're not trying to... I was like, it's probably true. The nicer you are to the flight crew, the less likely they're going to try to stab you when you're not looking. Yeah. No, like, it's not my... I mean... Yeah. Okay, FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle-area banks, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most with serial numbers beginning with the letter L, indicating insurances by the indicating insurance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and most from the 1963A. Okay, okay, they microfilmed all the money, too. So, like, he's not saying non-sequential, I think. So it's not unmarked bills. So I want um, American currency nondescript but it's all like they know what the money is is what i'm trying to say they know what it starts with the serial numbers maybe just didn't want like yeah yeah to, it to be well he'll just he'll other. just pay for everything in cash instead of putting it in the bank cooper rejected the military issued parachute offered by mccord afb personnel instead demanded civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords seattle police obtained them from a local skydiving school which i think they were also military parachutes at the skydiving school <laughs> at 5:24 p.m cooper was informed that his demands had been met and at 5:39 p.m the aircraft landed at seattle's Tacoma airport it was more than an hour after sunset and cooper instructed scott to taxi his jet to an isolated isolated but brightly lit section of the apron and close each window shade in the cabin to deter police snipers northwest orion seattle operation manager al lee approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that cooper might mistake his airline uniform for that of a police officer don't shoot here's your money he delivered the cash filled knapsack and parachutes to tina via the aft stairs it's aft he delivered the cash filled knapsack and parachutes to tina via the aft stairs once the delivery was complete cooper ordered all passengers florence senior flight attendant alice hancock to deliver to leave the plane so he's not so you deliver me four parachutes so i'm how many hostages are you keeping and forcing to jump out of the plane with you like like no one wants that because someone might actually get hurt besides just you so he has a hostage situation is what it feels like even though he let almost everyone go mm-hmm. During refueling, Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew a southeast course towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft approximately 100 knots or 150 miles per hour at a maximum 10,000 foot altitude or 3,000 miles. He further specified that the landing gear remained deployed in the takeoff landing position. The wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees and the cabin remain unpressurized. How's all this shit? I don't know. See, like, mm mm-hmm. Co-pilot William Ratkazar 
informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately a hundred or approximately a thousand miles under the specific specified flight configuration, which meant that the second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Like, dude, we're going to run out of gas. He's like, okay, I'm fine with that. I mean, cause I'm leaving in the parachute. <laughs> <laughs> Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed on Reno, Nevada as the refueling stop. When the plane's rear exit door opened and its staircase extended, Cooper directed the pilot to take off. So I want you to take off with the stairs out. Northwest Home Office objected on the grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the a- the aft stairs deployed. AFT. I think I'm saying it right. <laughs> yes. Fore and aft. Yeah. Cooper countered that it was indeed safe, but he would not argue the point. He's not even trying to be a dick about his demands. He's like, oh, okay. I, I, he said please and thank you. Yeah. That's hijacking 101. Mm-hmm. Line your P's and Q's. Yeah. Say please and thank you's. <laughs> he would lower it once they were airborne. An, a- an FAA official requested face-to-face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft, which was denied. He's like, nah, man, I don't need that. I don't need your face in my face. The refueling process was delayed because of a vapor lock in the fuel tanker truck's pumping mechanism. So, like, it took them a long time. Like, this truck wasn't working to refuel it. You've got to think, me and that guy that's in charge of that truck, like, I'm sorry, guys. I'm so <laughs> sorry. No, no, no. This is my first day. Oopsie doodles. <laughs> However, once refueling had been completed, the plane was able to take off. At approximately 7.40 p.m., the Boeing 727 took off with only five people on board. Cooper... Pilot Scott, flight attendant Tina, co-pilot William, and flight engineer A.E. Anderson. There's a lot of names in this, but you don't have to remember them. It's just, I mean. I've been taking notes. Okay. Like, it's not a storyline that you have to follow, like, but there are. Okay. Follow it. (laughs) Two fighter aircrafts were scrambled from McCord Air Force Base and followed behind the airliner, one above it and one below, out of Cooper's view. A Lockhead T-33 trainer diverted from an unrelated Air National Guard mission. Also shouted the 727 before running low on fuel and returning and, and heading back to Oregon, California state line. Overall, there were five planes in total trailing the hijacked plane. So, like, when I picture this, you think it's just, like, alone. But there's five planes following this thing. And I don't know if he ever asked the pilot, like, hey, what are those other dots on your radar up there? And, like, birds, big birds. <laughs> yeah, they were birds, all right. Yeah. Don't mind. This, the, those damn Canadian geese that are fucking everywhere. What were they planning on do? I don't know. I don't know. I think they, I mean, if anything, if you're up in the air and you don't respond, like, they'll, they'll send uh, planes out to, like, follow you to be like, what is going on? And Did you have a heart attack while flying this plane? Like, what is going on that you're not responding? So, it's not necessarily, like, shoot it down or anything. Or, okay. But I don't know what they shoot do. Out! Shoot yeah, I don't think they would have gone up there no. and said, shoot this. Instead of just taking them down here on the uh, on the ground, wait for them to get up in the air yeah. and then shoot them down. That'll really deter hijacking. <laughs> Let's see. That's our best way to save innocent lives. Aww. After takeoff, Cooper told Tina to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. As she complied, she observed Cooper trying something, tying something around his waist. At approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aft air stair apparatus had been activated. So he's lowering the thingy, the technical term. That's what she said. <laughs> the, lowering the thingy. The crew's off. First mate, lower the thingy. <laughs> aye, aye, Captain, lowering the thingy. <laughs> <laughs> the cruise <laughs> the dinghy is lowered the sir dinghy, yeah, there you go. the crew 
the crew's offer of assistance via the aircraft intercom system was removed. Do you need help, sir? Can I be of assistance to you now? <laughs> no, I can handle my thingy on my own. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the crew soon noticed a subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the aft door was open. So they felt it open. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail sections sustained a sudden upward movement significant enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to a level flight. So he jumped off and they could feel it, like it being him leaving the plane. At approximately 10.15 p.m., the air stair was still deployed when Scott and William landed the 727 at Reno Airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police surrounded the jet as it had not yet been determined whether for certainty that Cooper was no longer on board or not. He was not. Okay. <clears throat> it was nice of him to not just open the door <laughs> on top <laughs> yeah. and get sucked out. Oh, so that's what I assume always happens. Okay, hold on. Well, no. I mean, if you do that, you're jumping right in front of the engine. Mm-hmm. Oh. FBI agents recovered 66 unidentified latent prints aboard the airliner. So he wasn't wearing gloves and he was touching things like he had drinks and stuff like that. The agents also found Cooper's black clip-on tie. <laughs> he used a clip-on. <laughs> His tie clip and two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened in two shrouded or suspension lines cut from the canopy. So one was like cut up. Authorities interviewed eyewitnesses in the Portland, Seattle and Reno and all who and all personnel interacted with Cooper. A series of composite sketches were developed that now scare Carla. (laughs) It's just very it's eerie. Yeah, it is. It looks just like the Zodiac. Yeah, that maybe that's what it is. So he made his way back to L.A.? Maybe. Local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects, and among them considered more than 800 of them, all but two dozen were eliminated from the investigation. So it's like, are you a man? Are you like five foot seven, between five eight and five ten, 170 some pounds? It's like, can you jump out of a plane? It's like, well, if I had to, I could. You're a suspect. Damn it. Damn it. I mean, no. No, I could never. An Oregon man named D.B. Cooper, who had a minor police record, was one of the first persons of interest in the case. He was contacted. Anybody named Dan Cooper, D.B. Cooper, mm-hmm. or if your name was Donald Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper is a direct descendant. That's right. <laughs> That's how he got his start. Yep. He was contacted by Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name or the same alias in a previous crime. He was quickly ruled out in as a suspect. In the off chance. He was like, no, I didn't hijack a plane today. <laughs> My plan for next month. But local reporter named James Long rushed to meet a deadline, confused the eliminated suspect's name with the pseudonym used by the hijacker. A wire service reporter republished the air, followed by numerous other media sources, including us right now, the moniker D.B. Cooper. So wow, it was got fucked. Mm-hmm. He's like, so some reporter just went, I think they said DB Cooper, right? Was it Dan or DB? He's like, I don't know. Google it. <laughs> and they said, what? We're like, I don't know. <laughs> Never mind. So now DB Cooper became lodged in public's collective memory. A precise search area was difficult to define, and even small difference in estimates of the aircraft speed or the environmental conditions along the flight path, which varied significantly by location and altitude, changed Cooper's projected landing point considerably. An important variable was the length of time he remained in free fall before pulling his ribcord, if indeed he succeeded in opening a parachute at all. 
Neither of the Air Force fighter pilots saw anything exit the airliner, either visually or on radar, nor did they see a parachute open. But at night, with extremely limited visibility and cloud cover obscuring any ground lighting below, an airborne human figure clad entirely in black clothing could easily have gone undetected. No one saw him jump. They only felt it. No one saw a parachute deploy. It was dark, cold, and rainy, I'm pretty sure, also. And he was not dressed for dark. He wasn't dressed for dark weather. That's a thing now. (laughs) He didn't have any reflective material on. (laughs) He wasn't dressed for the cold or any rough terrain. He had, like, business suit on. Yeah. Because people take you more seriously in a business suit. Just a fact. Well, yeah. In an experimental recreation, Scott piloted the aircraft used in the hijack in the same flight configuration. FBI agents pushed a 200-pound sled out of the open-air stair. Was he 200 pounds? I don't know. It, this this experiment is flawed. Based <laughs> on the experiment, it was concluded that at 8.13 p.m. was the most likely jump time. At the moment that the aircraft was flying, there was a heavy rainstorm over the Lewis River in southwest Washington. Is it Lewis or is it Louie? L-E. W-I-S. Lewis. Lewis. Got it. (laughs) So they pushed a 200-pound sled out of the back of a big plane and was like, this is experiment. Yes. (laughs) And I don't think it really was that accurate. I mean, because how long did that sled hang in free fall before it pulled the ripcord for its parachute? Wow. There's no way to know. I don't have any thumbs. (laughs) Initial estimates placed Cooper's landing zone within an area of the northmost outreach of Mount St. Helen, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin, which I really like that name, (laughs) Merwin, an artificial lake formed by a dam. Search efforts focused on Clark and Cowlitz County, encompassing the terrain immediately south and north, respectively, of the Lewis River in the southwest Washington. Uh, FBI agents and sheriff's deputies from those counties search large areas of the mountainous wilderness on foot and by helicopter. Ele- helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> the helicopter. The helicopter. That's Dor- how my Italian grandmother would have said. Yeah. Helicopter. Door to door. Door to door. Door That's what I said. You heard me. <laughs> yes, we're that's gonna- what we're going to do. We're going to print that on coffee mugs <laughs> with the quote that says Danielle. Door to door. Now, what's happened here is this is this was a quote by the Swedish chef from the Muppets. <laughs> and I de- deflowered it. What happened with what happened with uh, DB Cooper, Durs Mr. Durs. Chef? Durs <laughs> 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 Mind you, we're, uh, we're putting on a live show. <laughs> April, 20th, April 18th at 3 p.m.-ish at Come the Vogue. We're so awesome. Come we're playing Saturday poorly. afternoon. At the Vogue. It's a matinee. It's not just us. There's other podcasts. It's very classic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a real adultish. I'll be in a tuxedo. <laughs> yes. I think you need to wear a tuxedo now. <laughs> a D.B. Cooper outfit. That's what you need. Wow. Well, we'll take must, bets if you, you do this. You must become what you fear. <laughs> Anyways, door to door. Searches of local farmhouses were also carried out. Other search parties ran patrol boats along Lake Merwin and <laughs> Yale Lake. What? I couldn't help it. I had to look it up. If there was a <laughs> Swedish chef t-shirt, and there is. Of course. But it says, 
Vertifurk. <laughs> now you need to wear that to the live show. <laughs> Vertifurk. <laughs> I'll get that and wear it to Disneyland. Okay. <laughs> it's not cursing. It's just implied. No trace of Cooper nor any of the equipment presumed to have left the aircraft with him was found. Right? Right. This is why it's such a mystery. I hate it. I hate mysteries. The FBI also coordinated an aerial search using fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard along the entire flight path known as Victor 23 in standard aviation terminology, but Vector 23 in most Cooper literature. Hmm. Now, you know, numerous broken treetops and several pieces of plastic and other objects resembling parachute canopies were sighted and investigated. Nothing relevant to the hijacking was found. Shortly after the spring thaw in early 1972, teams of FBI agents aided by some 200 Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, it is Lewis, <laughs> along with the Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian volunteers, conducted an- another thorough ground search of Clark and Cowlitz County for 18 days in March, and then an additional 18 days in April. Electronic Explorations Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine to search the 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin. If I Merwin, I want a pet. And besides you, Lars, and his name is Merwin. He's offended. He's asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County. It was later identified as the remains of a female teenager who had been abducted and murdered several weeks before. Damn. Yeah. So it was like, well, that's not D.B. Cooper. It's like, nope. Now we have to look at that. Yeah, I was like, great. <laughs> Ultimately, the search and recovery operation, arguably the most expensive and extensive in U.S. history, uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. A month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of the ran- ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted significant cash transactions. So they're like, hey, if you run across like our cash, we want it back. Okay. Okay. Okay, thanks. Uh, that, see, that's what I've been wondering this whole time, is if they knew the numbers, I wonder how much of this cash reappeared. I will tell you. Northwest Ooh. Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money to a maximum of $25,000. It's $200,000, but we'll give you twenty five if you give it all back to us. Well, I mean, Yeah, because if they catch you spending it, and they're like, where do you get this money from? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Right. In early 1972, U.S. Attorney General John N. Mitchell released the serial numbers to the general public. The same year, two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper serial numbers to swindle three to swindle thirty thousand from new, a Newsweek reporter in exchange for an interview with a man falsely claiming to be the hijacker. So people printed fake money. So could you get in trouble twice for like yes. swindling someone and printing fake money? Yeah, yeah. 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 there'd be multiple charges. They don't look when you do that. In early 1973, with the ransom money still missing, the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in ransom bills to the newspaper or any FBI field office. So, I'm trying to lure someone to turn in one of the right, right serial numbers. It's like, how many people look at their money? It's like, maybe I mean, when I all guess this if is you going on. There was a chance you were going to get, here, if I have $10, mm-hmm. I'll get $1.50. How, yeah, how large were the bills that they gave them? $20 bills, okay. I think. I don't know if they are. $3. $3. $50 bill. <laughs> In 
In Seattle, the Post Intelligence made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward. The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving 1974, and though there were several near matches, no genuine bills were found. In 1975, Northwest Orient's insurer, Global Indemnity Company, complied with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court and paid the airline 180000 claim on the ransom money. They <laughs> were like, we have you to pay for all these hijackers. That's what we pay you for. And they're like, but it happens so frequently <laughs> that us as insurances, as people, aren't making enough money to have expensive hobbies. And if we can't have expensive hobbies, what's the point of existing? So they wouldn't pay this airliner until Minnesota Supreme Court said, sweetheart, they pay you for the hijackers and now you must pay them. And they go, fine. <laughs> but fine. we're raising everyone's rates. Yeah. yeah. Yep, that's what I do. Subsequent analysis indicate the, the original landing zone estimate was inaccurate. Scott, who was flying the aircraft aircraft manually because of Cooper's speed and altitude demands, later determined that his flight path was significantly farther east than initially assumed. Additional data from the variety of sources, in particular, Continental Airline pilot Tom Bohan. Mm-mm. Bowen? Tom Bowen. It does not matter. This man's name does not matter. Tom. Tom. Uh, Ten second Tom. Tom is <laughs> Hi, I'm Tom. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tom. Tom the pilot was flying four minutes. Hi, behind. I'm Tom. <laughs> <laughs> behind flight 305, indicating that the wind direction factory into drop zone calculations had been wrong, possibly by as much as 80 degrees. This suggested that the actual drop zone was probably south southeast of the original estimate in the drainage. Yeah, in the drainage area of Washagol River. So they're saying, I was right right behind your hijacked plane, and I know more about it than you do. I was, I was right there with you. Your information's wrong. No kind of Sanders. No wrong. No wrong. The official physical description of Cooper has remained unchanged and is considered reliable. Flight attendants who spend the most time with Cooper were interviewed on the same night in separate cities and gave nearly identical descriptions. Five foot, 10 to 11 inches tall, 170 to 180 pounds, mid-40s with close-set, piercing brown eyes and swarthy skin. Which I meant, I think he had a lot of sun exposure is what that means. Is swarthy a nice way to say leathery? I don't know. I'm not yes. sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Three major pieces of evidence were left on the plane when D.B. Cooper jumped his black clip-on tie, a mother-of-pearl tie clip, and eight filter-tipped Raleigh cigarette butts smoking on the aircraft. Completely fine. The information about the tie and the tie clip were not announced to the public for almost 20 years. When in 1991, it was revealed in the book D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, sometime after the hijacking, the cigarette butts were lost and have not turned up since. They're still looking for the butts. Only okay, four. But like, they could have done some like DNA testing on that shit. Don't worry, I'll help you. Okay. Only four pieces of evidence, two definite and two potential linked to D.B. Cooper, have turned up from 1978 to 2017. In November 1978, a place card printed with instructions for lowering the aft stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter near a lodging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, well north of Lake Merwin, but within the flight's 305 basic flight path. So someone found instructions on a piece of paper and actually connected to what it was and turned it in. I would have wow. been like, I'm like, litterers. Everyone litters and thrown <laughs> it away. <laughs> You sound like an anger old man. I would be. I was like, learn on my property. <laughs> That's why my car looks like a trash can, because I won't litter. <laughs> I feel bad. Yeah. On Sunday, February... Yeah, but that's a lot of trash. So. <laughs> Listen. On Sunday, February 10th, 1980, 
Eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar, about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles southwest of Ariel. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash as he raked the sandy riverbank to build a campfire. An eight-year-old boy found the ransom money. He's like, he must have thought it was the golden ticket. Yeah, I got a golden ticket. Run <laughs> home, Charlie, and don't stop. <laughs> It's like, we're on vacation. I have a long way to run. The bills were significant. What was the thing talking about? Grandpa Joe couldn't get out of bed all these years to help the mon- help make money so they could live. But as soon as there was a golden ticket to visit the chocolate factory, he was up. jumps right out of bed. There was um my friend Lindsay and Kelsey. They uh they were in Pittsburgh during college. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. And he was in Pittsburgh. Or maybe they were at their school. I don't know. But apparently, Lindsay got so, so drunk. And Kelsey, the only way she could describe how drunk she was, was she described her as being like Grandpa Joe. <laughs> when he would, like, fall over and she'd, like, go catch him, push, <laughs> push him back, back up, up and fall over. <laughs> and the sound effects, woo! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyways, anyway. money. The bills were significantly disintegrated, but still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Two packets of $120 bills each. Two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as was given to Cooper. In 1986, after protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between... Ingram and Northwest Orient Insurer. So the insurance money that wouldn't pay the airline people to begin with is fighting for this like recovered money. Yeah, that's the DB Cooper money. I think it was a total of like five grand, I think is what it came out to be, what this boy found. That shit needs to be in a museum. Well, they kept some of it. The FBI. Oh, wait, what was it? It was $2,100 bills. No, I've. I heard listened to some other podcasts say five grand, but let me. Oh, it okay. says two packets of one hundred twenty dollar bills each. So, so four grand. Yeah, I said, okay. and but yeah. then there was also a packet of ninety, so almost five almost, grand. Yeah. I'm not wrong. Of ninety dollars uh, of ninety one hundred ninety twenty dollar bills. Listen, it's almost five grand. Just okay. trust me. Okay. I didn't make up that math. I swear. I wasn't gonna even. Fact no. check you, so. But anyways, that insurance is coming from that money. They do not want that eight-year-old boy to have five grand of their money. No. It's part of, like, uh, an investigation. Yeah. Okay. So the FBI retained 14 examples as evidence. So they don't need every single piece. But for someone like this, you almost think they would keep it. Yeah. Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 for how much money? Each bill? He sold together 15 bills at auction. So maybe all together. Uh, I bet he made. I bet he made twenty thousand bucks. Thirty-seven thousand. You're close. Oh wait a second! I was going to guess. Oh. Thirty-eight dollars <laughs> and fifty cents. What was it again? <laughs> Thirty-seven thousand dollars. Oh, and what you guess, Carla? Twenty thousand. Oh, I win. <laughs> <laughs> to date, none of the nine thousand seven hundred and ten remaining bills have turned up anywhere in the world. No one has found the rest of this money. Only just this sand pile. So we know, though, that a lot of, well, the $20 bills they make now look way different. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So you would know if someone rolls up with these bills. But it's like. Yeah, but. 
I know, but if you I ever, mean, depending on, I guess it depends on what he spent the money on or who he spent it with. Because there's or some if people he even out survived there that wouldn't at all. Shit. Because it, some people theorize he lost all that money jumping out of the plane. Like it was not secured to him well enough. So it's like, how so did they give it to him? They, when they were refueling, he handed it to the flight stewardess. I know, but in a container? A bag, I think. And then he, yeah, he, he, they're pretty sure he tied everything to him with one of the parachutes, like secured it to him. But not well enough. That does, yeah. That doesn't I don't really know. Seem... I think he's dead, but we'll get there. That doesn't seem like an ironclad plan. No, no, so. it's not. Okay, in nineteen, the nineteen eighty cash discovered launched several new rounds of conjecture and ultimately raised more questions than it answered. Initially, uh, statements by investigators and science, scientific consultants were founded on the assumption that the bundled bills washed freely into the Columbia River from one of its many connecting tributaries. An Army Corps engineer hydrologist noted that the bills had disintegrated in a rounded fashion and were matted together, indicating that they had been deposited by river action as opposed to having been deliberately buried. So that's their belief. It also lent credence to the supplemental speculation that placed the drop zone near the Washagall River, which merges with the Columbia upstream from the discovery site. So they're saying, like, he did not bury that money. Like, it's been there for so long that it washed there and was buried naturally is what they're trying to say yeah one of the God, you think they would have found more of it but maybe I not know. i guess if it came off one of the investigators himmelsbach hmm, yeah himmelsbach observed that free floating bundles would have had to wash up on the bank within a couple of years of the hijacking otherwise the rubber bands would have long since deteriorated so that's the thing is why is the why are the rubber bands in such good shape like holding that money all together still if they've been there for so long you know, so that was like the idea is to have, did he recently bury them? And they're saying, no, it's washed up. It's like, why are the rubber bands still like rubber bands and not completely disintegrated if it's been there since 1972 and now it's 1980 something? And it's like, so, yeah, it's confusing. Uh, in 2017, a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believe to be potential evidence that appears to be decades old parachute straps in the Pacific Northwest. This was followed later in August 2017 with a piece of foam suspected of being part of Cooper's backpack. So that's what they found. But nothing. The only thing confirmed is that that 5000 cash that is connected to it. Everything else is like we think it could be. But that's it. Yeah. In late 2007, the FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been obtained from three organic samples found on Cooper's clip-on tie. The tie had two small DNA samples and one large sample, said Special Agent Fred Gutt. It's difficult to draw a firm conclusion from these samples. The Bureau also made public a file of previously unreleased evidence, including Cooper's 1971 plane ticket, which was $20. And posted previously unreleased composite sketches and fact sheets, along with a request to the general public for information which might lead to Cooper's positive identification. They're still asking for that. It still hasn't happened. Jeez. They also disclosed that Cooper chose the older of the two primary parachutes supplied to him rather than the technically superior professional sports parachute. And that from the two reserve parachutes, he selected a dummy an unusable unit with an inoperative ripcord intended for classroom demonstration. So they don't, I don't know if they're trying to say he could have put on the dummy parachute. I don't know, like, or if he used the dummy one that he cut open and tied to him. The question all becomes, how much does this person know about jumping out of the back of a plane with a parachute? Yeah. Because if you handed me a parachute and said, put this on, I would say, oh, I'm fucked. 
It's like, I need a how-to, a YouTube video. You pull this one and then this one. No, but you got to get it on you all first, too. So if you have no experience putting anything like that on yourself, I'd be like, I hope I'm doing this right. I feel like he would have. So if he had experience, would he know what a demonstrational uh, parachute looks like, like in classroom use, which makes me very... You would think you didn't go all that. I mean, I don't know. We, you know, we've all come across people in this life that you would go... They're fucking arrogant enough to think that they could just read it and just do it. Yeah, like, oh, you're just stepping into it like a harness, I'm sure, and pull one, then pull the other. And it's like, meh. Um, although it had clear markings identifying it as an experienced di- skydiver as non-functional. So they're saying someone who's done this before would know that that's a bad parachute. Don't jump with that one in particular. But if he doesn't have experience, then it's like, did he put that on or is it just the one he tore up to tie around himself? I think it's kind of fucked up. They gave him but one like, dummy okay, parachute. To, oh yeah, I'm about to yeah. read that to you. The FBI stressed that inclusion of the dummy reserve parachute, one of four obtained in haste from a Seattle skydiving school, was accidental. <laughs> we were not trying to kill this man or his hostages. We promise. Because they thought he might be using it to make other people jump with him. So <laughs> they were like, who gets the when dummy parachute? When did they parachute? figure out there was a dummy? I, I think they recovered. He left it behind. I don't know if he left it behind parts of it, but that's what they're saying is that like one got cut up. That okay, he chose. He was given four parachutes, and he chose the older of the two main parachutes. So he chose a lesser, you know, fancier one. So does that mean he knew how to use the one he chose, or he couldn't tell the difference between a new one and a eh, not so new one? And that from the two reserve parachutes, he selected a dummy and unusable classroom for classroom demonstration so it's like he selected that and i was like but does that mean he used that one to tie the money to himself because it was an unusable one anyways i don't know this is copy and paste from wikipedia if you have a problem with its wording contact wikipedia (laughs) (laughs) um so they didn't mean they were not trying to kill anyone the fbi promises but in sidestep in April 2013 earl cossey the owner of the skydiving school that they furnished the four parachutes that were given to Cooper was found dead in his home in Woodenville, a suburb of Seattle. His death was ruled a homicide due to blunt force trauma to the head. The perpetrator remains unknown. So that dude got murdered. But he got real fucking sick of people coming to him going, is this the parachute you gave him? People came to him all the time wanting to know if the, whatever parachute they had or piece they'd found was one of the ones from his school back in 1972. And he was like, I hate all of you. Yeah, he's like, I'm really supposed to memorize what every single parachute we and it's have like, looks like. And I think at one point he was like, yes. It was April Fool's. He was like, you found it. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was so sick of people. I would be too. I would. But I would. Yeah. They tell said, everyone, I think this is it. They think it was a home invasion gone wrong, his murder. But Yikes. that's. In March of 2009, the FBI disclosed that Tom Kane, a paleontologist from the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle, had assembled a team of citizen sleuths, including scientific illustrator Carl Abrazin Kazak. Hmm. <laughs> Abrazin Kazak. Abrazin. It looks like Abracadabra. And metallurgist Alan Stone. Oh, if you're a metallurgist and your last name is Stone. <laughs> okay. Hey, man. <laughs> The group, eventually known as the Cooper Research Team, reinvestigated important components of the case using GPS, satellite imagery, and other technologies unavailable in 1971. They were able to find and analyze hundreds of minute particles on Cooper's tie using electronic microscopy. 
Lycodium spores, likely from a pharmaceutical product, were identified as well as fragments of bismuth and aluminum. So he's got some weird shit on his tie, and I think it just came from JCPenney, like the tie. So they're like, I don't know why. Yeah. They're so, trying to they're trying to figure out did he work somewhere with these type of chemicals like it, or metals? Yeah. He did. He did metalworking and wore his uh, bow tie. Bow t- yeah. In November 2011, Kane announced that particles of pure unalloyed titanium had been also been found on the tie he explained that the titanium which was much rarer in the 1970s than in the 2000s it was at the time found only in metal fabrication or production of facilities or at chemical companies using it to combine with aluminum to store extremely corrosive substances so that's they're like it's unusual that this person would be in contact with it the findings suggested that cooper may have been a chemist or a metallurgist or possibly an engineer or manager. The only employees who would wear ties at the time. So I'm a manager. <laughs> that's he why he has a tie. Manage the people with the metal. Yes, and that's <laughs> how he got the medals on his tie. Um, or a company that recovered scrap metal from other types of Okay, they're speculating. In January 2017, Kane reported that rare earth minerals such as cerium and strodium uh, ser- uh, strontium. <laughs> ser- cerium and stro- strontium sulfide. Yep, strontium sulfide had also been identified among particles from the time. One of the rare applications for such elements in the 1970s was Boeing's supersonic transport development project. Oh, oh. someone who worked on airplanes. Oh, yeah, I knew he knew he knows what the fuck he was doing, suggesting the possibility that Cooper was a Boeing employee. Other possible sources of the material include plants that manufacture cathode ray tubes, such as Portland firms, Tidex, Tecronox, uh, more you fancy. You know what a cathode ray tube is? No. What it's is? a fucking TV. Oh, I need those. Or they use them in <laughs> they, the old timey oh, TVs. Oh, yeah. Your tube TV. Yeah. SCTR. CRT. Yeah, CRT. It's like the rounded, like, fucking... I know shit, okay. Mom and dad like to say that, so our daughter. I used to only have three channels and I had to change them by hand. She's like, What? How did you watch your Yeti documentary? <laughs> in standard definition from early 2000s. <laughs> so weird. But then a kid broke into Mount Everest and the ride. <laughs> you should explain that better. <laughs> the kid broke in. Okay. He broke into a mountain. <laughs> well, you do have to pay to climb Mount Everest. He could have broken in. Some kid, some punk on a bike with a GoPro, broke onto Disney property, got into the Mount Everest expedition ride, climbed all the way up and got up in the Yeti's face and like videotaped him and shit. It's really, it's it's really fucking cool. It is cool. And I think. Honest with you, it wouldn't be that hard to do. That's what 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 it looked like like, because you pull up the overhead of it and it's like, man, you could go right there. I just couldn't believe they didn't have any motion sensor. Like someone is here that shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, you would think there's. There's got to be cameras. There are just so you have many. Ca- are there cameras placed throughout the rides? Yes. Well, okay. Depending on the ride, like the Speedway didn't have any cameras. Yeah, right. But if you got a big roller coaster, there's cameras. Yeah. Because you, especially whoever is um, like in the tower position, which is like, mm-hmm. like overseeing a- the function of the ride, there yeah. are cameras. You have to have your hand Do on the Do the camera machine. stay playing overnight? I believe so. Okay. So they, and I'm sure this kid didn't have his face you know, exposed. The rides, they never stop running because Even- the maintenance comes in at night and fucks with it. 
Oh man! So it's just like constantly. So this kid—that's what it's like. He had to know, had to have known someone something that they were not going to be there that night. But on his Patreon, he got booted from Patreon for being on property. Like they're like, you're doing illegal shit. You can't be on Patreon doing illegal shit. He's on some like star or something. I don't know what the other name of it is. Now I'm gonna have to look it up. Yep. So he has like extra content of behind the scenes stuff at Disney. Where you're like, I need to see this, but I'm not gonna pay this punk any money. Have tried to break into the abandoned water park. Mm -hmm. They were like banned from property. Yeah. I think his kept saying banned from Disney kid. twice. Yeah, really. I'm Probably. Surprised. I mean, he's one of them. Yeah. Fucking weirdo. Like, just, just, I just chill. go to the parks. They're so much fun. Just go to Universal. Damn. Like, yeah. <laughs> he's done that too. Yeah, I'm broken. It. Uh, you'll have to. We'll look him up later when we're done. Okay. So where were we? Huh. Huh. Cooper. Instead of having advertisements, we have sidebars and we yeah. talk about <laughs> yeah shit see? not pertaining to the episode. Yeah. Damn it. Cooper appeared to be familiar with the Seattle area and may have been an Air Force veteran based on testimony that he recognized the city of Tacoma from the air as the jet circled Puget Sound. His financial situation was very likely desperate, according to the FBI's retired chief investigator, Ralph Heslenbacher. Hemslenbach. Hemslenbach. <laughs> it gets worse every time. Extortionists and other criminals who steal large amounts of money nearly always do so because they need money. Or he could have been a thrill seeker who made the jump just to prove that it could be done. Yeah, he wouldn't have easily well done that if he didn't hijack the plane. Yeah. Agents theorized that Cooper took his alias from a popular Belgium comic book series of the 1970s featuring the fictional hero Dan Cooper, a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot who took part in numerous heroic adventures, including parachuting. Because the Dan Cooper comics were never translated into English nor imported to the U.S., they speculated that they may have encountered them during a tour of duty in Europe. The Cooper research team suggested that alternate possibility that Cooper was Canadian and found the comics in Canada, where they and were also sold. That's why he would say, American. I need American money. American like, money. Oh shit, you're in America. But like, looking at you, we can't tell that you're Canadian by looking at you. <laughs> Yeah, you can. One of those things. <laughs> their heads and their jaw completely oh, comes unhinged. <laughs> he said, give me your money. Ah, internet money. Yep. What you just said was my next line. That's why he said negotiable American currency. Mm-hmm. A phrase seldom, if ever, used by American citizens. Since, witness, uh, since witnesses say that Cooper had no distinguishable accent, Canada would be a likely country of origin. Oh. He could have spoke French. Yeah. French-Canadian. Evidence suggests that Cooper was knowledgeable about flying technique, aircraft, and the terrain. He demanded four parachutes to force the assumption that he might compel one or more hostages to jump, thus ensuring that he would not be deliberately supplied with sabotage equipment. Deliberately supplied? They said they didn't mean to give him a defunct parachute. It was an accident. (laughs) He chose a 727 aircraft because it was ideal for bailout escape due to not only its air... It's aft air stair, but also the high afterward placement of all three engines, which allowed a reasonable safe jump despite the proximity of the engine's exhaust. It had a single point fueling capability, a then recent innovation that allowed all tanks to be fueled rapidly through a single fuel port, although it took like four hours to fill the plane because of that truck that wasn't working properly. In addition... Cooper was familiar with import details such as the appropriate flap setting of 15 degrees, which was unique to that aircraft. In the typical refueling time, he knew that the air, aft air stair would be lowered during flight, a fact never disclosed to civilian flight crews, and that its operation by a single switch in the rear of the cabin could not be override, overridden from the cockpit. Some of the knowledge was virtually unique to CIA paramilitary units. So, like, people didn't fucking know you could lower them stairs from the back and no one could unlower them. And it's like, once he pushed the thingy down, the stairs came down. 
and the people in the front couldn't undo the thingies. So it's That's like, true. how many people would know that? First mate. Yeah. <laughs> Someone who works on the planes. Although Cooper made the demand of non-sequential numbered small bills, mass publicity over the Lindenberg case had long made it public knowledge that even with 1930s technology, getting non-sequential bills and a ransom was no defense against the numbers being logged and used to track down a perpetrator. In the Lindenberg case, the perpetrator had been caught through the ransom money nonetheless, with identification and handwriting evidence brought in only at trial. So it's like... We can still find you with us money. You know that, right? We can still fucking find you. <laughs> like you take it, but it, it still could end badly for you. Whether Cooper's jump was virtually suicide is a matter of dispute. So it's like, I think he probably died. I don't know. I it was like 10 had... degrees out from 10,000 feet or something like that in a suit. I don't know. I mean, that's not, I mean, you got to think that's 20,000 feet under Everest. So Yeah. yeah I mean, but it's just... It's just I, at know. night and I mean, shitty 10, 000, weather. 10,000 feet, I think, is a normal jump. Yeah, it is. We need to so. ask Mindy. She's jumped out of a plane how many times? Once. Once. If you thought of someone that would jump out of a plane, you wouldn't think it was her, but she has, and I will not. I don't I don't think I ever will. Mm-mm. If if I got a chance to go up with like one of the jump teams from the Army, oh, I yeah. might do it. Like, you hold my hand, sir. I will jump with you. Why then. don't we just... Why don't we just share one? <laughs> share a parachute. <laughs> See, someone like Mindy would Well, that's be- what I'm saying. I would be sharing. I'd be strapped to somebody. Yeah. I yeah. think that's how they She would be more yeah. likely, though, to survive. If someone threw a parachute at her and said, put this on with no help, she would be much more likely to survive than I. Because I'd be yeah. like, I do not know, sir. Um, the, the best one is that old lady that goes to yes, jump and out. and decides she's done. And she decides that she didn't want to go at the last second, so she tries to sit down. Well, he... Rolled for he was rolling forward to go mm-hmm. out at the same time she decided to say fuck off, and she came out of the parachute, and so she went all the way. To, you've got to see it. Were her pants down most of the time? She came out of the parachute. She yeah. died. Then no, no, no. no, no. She oh. she stayed in. But on. she could have died. The author of an overview in comparison of World War II air crew bailouts with Cooper's drop asserts a probability for his survival and suggests that like copycat Martin McNally, remember that name. A copycat. Cooper lost the ransom during descent. So, like, the idea is that even though you're trying to maintain a hold of something, you just didn't hold on to it very well. The mystery of how the ransom could have been washed into Tina Bay from Cooper Jump Area remains. So, they don't know how it got there. The Tina, uh, or Tina Bar, sorry. The Tina Bar find anomaly led one local journalist to suggest that Cooper dumped the ransom knowing he would could never spend it. So, either... Maybe he dropped it on purpose, but then they would have found a bunch of it, man. Like, if you're just dropping, like, all them bills in the air, flinging it, like, cash money, people would have found that shit. You would have thought. Yeah. It's not like some jungle somewhere that, like, people can't get to. It's just, which I always have thought in my head. I don't know why I did. (laughs) According to Kay's research team, Cooper's meticulous planning may also have extended to the timing of his operation and even his choice of attire. Suggesting that the perpetrator may have returned to his normal occupation after the jump. Like, I jump, I survive, I go back home and pretend that never happened. I sits. I sits. <laughs> if you were planning on going back to work on Monday, quote unquote, then you would need as much time as possible to get out of the woods, find transportation, and get home. The very best time for this, during a four-day weekend. So you, have, you don't have to be at work on Monday. You have an oh. extra day to get home. <laughs> Which is the timing... Dan Cooper chose for his crime. So that was a four-day weekend. I don't know what holiday it was. Furthermore, if he was planning ahead, he knew that he he had to hitchhike out of the woods and it is much easier to get picked up in a suit and a tie than in old blue jeans. So 
that you would have gotten if I was thumbing it in a suit and tie, people would be more likely to pull over and help you. Maybe? That or they'd be super Probably. suspicious. Or they would assume that you're a business person whose car has broken down and you were walking. Like The Bureau was more skeptical, including that Cooper lacked crucial skydiving skills and experience. So this is, I feel like they talk out of both sides of their mouth. They'll disqualify someone saying he doesn't have enough experience. Like this person you're talking about doesn't have skydiving experience. Or you'll say that person has too much skydiving experience. This guy, D.B. Cooper, didn't really know what he was doing. So it's like, well, which one is it? He had to have known things about planes. Yeah. It's, um, maybe he didn't know as much about skydiving and more about planes. than Because there are two things. I've been in lots of planes, mm-hmm. but never jumped out in of any. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I've, yeah. Uh, we originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper, said Special Agent Larry Carr, leader of the investigation team from 2006 until its dissolution in 2016. We concluded after a few years that this was simply not true. A Boeing 727 at flaps 15 degrees and lightweight probably flies at 150 knots or 172 miles per hour. No experienced parachuter would have jumped in pitch black night in the rain with 172 mile winds in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. He also missed reserve parachute was only for training and had been sewn shut. Okay, so they're thinking... Now that if I have a reserve chute, like my backup chute, he took a backup chute that was not a parachute at all. It was just a bag sewn shut. It was meant to look like a parachute. <laughs> it was like he took a plastic grocery bag and jumped off a roof. And said, "Wee!" She also failed to bring or request a helmet. Skydivers like to wear helmets. Yeah, <laughs> well. He, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense to me. Choosing to jump with an older and technically inferior of the two primary parachutes applied to him and jumped into a probable 15 degrees Fahrenheit wind at 10,000 feet in November over Washington. I mean, but you can lit. I mean. Yeah, but without proper protection against extreme wind chill. I think they're saying, well, what did he have on under his suit? Yeah. Maybe he was warmer underneath the suit. Maybe he brought gloves with him. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, it's like. Oh, no, he definitely didn't have, like, a winter coat in his attache case. He just had fake bombs. The FBI speculated from the beginning that Cooper did not survive his jump. Even if he did land safely, agents contend the survival in the mountainous terrain at the onset of winter would have been almost impossible without an accomplice at a predetermined landing point. Oh, maybe he had help. Uh, Himmelsbach wrote, I have to confess, if I were going to look for Cooper, I would head for Washigal. The Washougal Valley and its surroundings have been searched repeatedly by private individuals and groups in subsequent years to date. No discoveries directly traceable to the hijacking have been reported. Some investigators have speculated that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens may have obliterated any remaining physical clues. Damn. Oh, shit. So just layer upon layer. In 1976, discussion arose over the impending expiration of the statute of limitations on the hijacking. A Portland grand jury returned an indictment in, in absentia against John Doe, a.k.a. Dan Cooper, for air piracy in violation of the Hobbs Act, which I don't know what that is. The indictment formally initiated prosecution can be continued should the hijacker appear at any future time. So anyone who says that, you know, now no one comes forward and be like, oh, yeah, that was me. Like, I can still prosecute you, yeah. just so you know. <laughs> Between 1971... In 2016, the FBI, the FBI processed over a thousand serious suspects. And I'm going to read a few. Daniel, do you want to start or should I read a couple? Or which one do you want to talk about when we talk to you yours? You go first. Okay. I don't know what order these are in on Wikipedia, the, the keeper of knowledge. But here they are. Kenneth Christensen, 
In 2003, a Minnesota resident named Lyle Christensen watched a television documentary about the Cooper hijacking and became convinced that his late brother, Kenneth, was Cooper. After repeated futile attempts to convince first the FBI, he contacted a private investigator in New York City. In 2010, the detective Skip Porteous published a book postulating that Christensen was the hijacker. The following year, an episode of history series Brad Meltzer's Decoded, so some series, also summarized the circumstantial evidence linking Christensen to the Cooper case. Christensen enlisted in the Army in 1944 and was trained as a paratrooper. The war had ended by the time he was deployed in 1945, but he made occasional training jumps while stationed in Japan with occupational forces in the late 1940s. That's what I'm saying. So we have like all this collective information like that is specific. Like we don't think he was from America and we think he had training with planes. Mm-hmm. And like if I, I would just feel like somebody out there knows someone someone like knows that. something someone knows that someone that is like that mm, and that's what like all these people crazy that they haven't figured it out yeah and it's also they're like well we thought he was a paratrooper but now we don't think he was because he wouldn't have taken like he wasn't experienced in jumping all these i'm about to read you are probably like people that have jumped out of planes before so it's like so he did have experience then if you're thinking all these suspects are people with military plane jumping experience so like the fbi can't decide if it's someone who knew how to jump out of planes or not. Well, they're giving you the scenarios. He either could or he couldn't. We watched a YouTube video. video. <laughs> I mean, now we're all stayed at a Holiday Inn yeah, Express. Yeah. <laughs> After leaving the Army, he joined Northwest Orient in 1954 as a mechanic in the South Pacific and subsequently became a flight attendant and then a pursuer based in Seattle. Christian Shin was 45 years old at the time of the hijacking, but he was shorter. Five foot, eight inches, about 150 pounds, lighter, complected. So not the leathery skin guy. Christensen smoked, as did the hijacker, and displayed a particular fondness for bourbon, Cooper's preferred beverage. Just because he ordered it on a plane twice doesn't make it preferred beverage. It re- that is that is very true. I'm like, what am I in the mood for? Right? Mm-hmm. If I was on a plane, I still don't, I don't know. What do you order? What? On a plane? Yeah, I feel like you've ordered I've never drank beverage. on a plane. No. no. No, I won't. And even on our last trip, I ran into a friend who is a, a airline a stewardess. A stewardess, but is, he's a guy, so a steward. And he gave us free drink tickets. I didn't, we didn't use any use of them. Yeah, we're like, I don't want to. I don't want to drink. Like, if- I have juice. Yeah, maybe that's what I occasionally get the juices. Do you get the juices? <laughs> he was also left-handed. Evidence photo of Cooper's black tie to the tie clip applied from the left side, suggesting a left-handed wearer. Florence Schaffner told a reporter that photos of Christensen fit her memory of the hijacker's appearance more closely than those of other suspects that she had been shown, but could not conclusively identify him. Christensen reportedly had purchased a house with cash a few months after the hijacking. While dying of cancer in 1994, he told Lyle, there's something you should know, but I cannot tell you. Like, motherfucker. (laughs) Then I don't need to know, then do I? Lyle said he never pressed his brother to explain. I will press you to explain if you're dying and you're like, there's something you need to know, but you can't tell you. I'm like, you're not dying until you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and she will. Yep. You could. I would just be like, you can either die or I can make it painful. <laughs> you can die the way you are or I can help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, after Christensen's death, family members discovered gold coins and a valuable stamp collection along with over 200000 in bank accounts. They also found a folder of Northwest Orient news clippings, which began about the time he was hired in the 1950s and stopped just prior to the date of the hijacking. Christensen continued to work part-time for the airline for many years after 1971, but apparently never clipped another news story. 
Research by Internet Web Sleuths would later uncover proof that Christensen did not pay cash for the house he bought after the hijacking button said had a mortgage on the house and took 17 years to pay it off. The same search would also uncover proof that Christensen had sold off almost two dozen acres of land for the 17000 per acre in the mid-90s, thus accounting for the large sum of money in his account at the time of his death. So they're explaining, like, no, it's not him. Despite the publicity generated by Porcher's book in the 2011 television documentary, the FBI stating by its position that Christensen cannot be considered a prime suspect, it cites a poor match by to eyewitness physical description, a level of skydiving expertise above that predicted by their suspect profile, and an absence of direct incriminating evidence. These people that they are describing would have had to mysteriously disappear then, right? Yeah, for like a weekend. And they don't feel like they never talk about that. Like, did were they gone like Thanksgiving weekend or were they weird? No. Were they injured when they got back? Like, yeah, and just because the description like matches someone, you know, like they look like this. i just i don't know i feel like uh wouldn't you notice if somebody you knew real well like went missing for For a a weekend yeah well it would have been i don't know weekend i mean there's some of our neighbors that yeah i guess i would we didn't see them for two weeks i probably wouldn't notice you would think that like someone at their job would be yeah i don't know that's what i'm saying it had to be over the long weekend and he had to be back in time for no one to miss him or to be like calling sick one day maybe or yeah. tell everybody he's going on vacation. That, yeah. That's true, too. Oh, fuck. I don't know. Jack Caulfelt was a con man, ex-convict, and purported government informant. In 1972, he began claiming he was Cooper and attempted through an intermediary, a former cellmate named James Brown, to tell his story to Hollywood Production Company. He said he landed near Mount Hood, about 50 miles southeast of Ariel, injuring himself and losing the ransom money in the process. That's why I'm in jail. I can't afford to get out. <laughs> Photos of Caulfelt... Bear a resemblance to the comp- the composite drawings, although he was in his mid fifties in nineteen seventy one. He was reported in Portland on the day of the hijacking and sustained leg injuries around the time, which were consistent with a skydiving mishap. Coughlin's account was reviewed by the FBI, which concluded that in different and significant details from the information had been made public and therefore fabrication. Brown, undeterred, continued peddling the story long after Coughlin died in nineteen seventy five. Multiple media venues, including CBS News program, 60 Minutes, considered and rejected it. Hmm. Not him. You read your story. My story? Yeah, do yours. How many more pages do you a have? A lot. We could stop and pick it back up next week, probably. That could work. But we, so you do yours. So at least there's, so there's an... a lot more information. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm excited. Yeah, we have enough to do next week. So you do your story and then we'll stop. I'm going to go read. Well, <laughs> not, I don't really have anything so much to read, but... Well, okay. This okay. This it. is our first. Uh, like, how do we have access to the story? You say because at one point we're like, wish we could do this, and Daniel goes, uh, we can talk about this because he has a story. Okay. Yes. Because one of the guys that was a suspect was a guy named Dick Simon, who uh, raced in the Indy Five Hundred. He drove an Indy car, and then he also then transitioned into owning a team, and he fit. The profile of what they were uh, what they were looking for. He was a skier, a scuba diver, a skydiver, a registered pilot, and parachutist. Ooh. And he lived in Salt Lake. Okay. So, and then another thing that he did was they were talking about doing crazy things. He once did a stunt. He jumped out of an airplane without a parachute. <gasps> And went to a guy that had jumped out of another plane holding his parachute 
and put it on and pulled the and landed safely. Okay. But he almost missed his parachute. And that was the time he realized I'd be more safe driving a race car. <laughs> so that's what he did. And actually, there's a video. You should put a link up to it of a crash he had. Okay. Uh, in California. Here, I'll show it to you guys so you can see it and react to it. That'd be really important. I love that. Um, to our listeners. So, um, but he got arrested, right? Or uh, detained. I mean, is it- no. So how I knew about this is I know, I knew a guy that worked for his race team. And one morning they were all there and the FBI raided the shop and took a bunch of stuff. From their- Damn. Yeah, like this. So, I guess- I should ask when what he when did he start driving? Was it after this? No, he started driving in ni- the nineteen seventies, but he made a lot of debt for himself racing, like paying for it. Oh, and so someone who needed team. money, so, yeah, someone right, who could jump out of plane, someone who did thrill seeking. This is the crash he had. <gasps> oh, 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 that that's a lot of flipping in the I've air. I've never seen a car do a cartwheel. That was a I car have. cartwheel. Oh man, was he okay? I mean, um, he got out on his own okay, and walked well, away, good. but he looked rough there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh wow. He's like, I'm getting like, out I'm of good. this thing. Like he probably needed a fresh pair of knickers. He says, "I'm going back to jumping out of planes." Fuck <laughs> this. This is bullshit. Now, what's funny is some hillbilly, uh, not wearing a shirt, smoking a cig, and carrying a beer, runs out onto the racetrack to help to console him. <laughs> <laughs> See, here he comes. I'm here, here to comes help. Comes in a bystander, Mr. Simon. Mr. Simon, are you okay? Let me help you, Mr. Simon. I'm- Look there he is. Oh, here we go. <laughs> These oh. are friends. He oh, friends. here we go, Mr. Simon. I must tell you, I'm not a doctor or nothing, but I just want to see if you're okay. I did okay stay at a Holiday Inn Express friend. last night. <laughs> did you know they're gonna think Dick. you're DB Cooper? Dick, what do you think of my short shorts <laughs> and my visor? <laughs> There. My short Honestly, people we've, dress the same we've way. We've compelled enough people maybe to watch. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I guess my question is, what is my question? So the year that this happened, he was an IndyCar driver. Or the year that the hijacking happened? What yeah. was he doing in 1971? Um, I think. So that makes sense. What month was it? It was February, right? No, November. It was November, right? Mm-hmm. So that would have been in the off season. So it's possible. So 19, 1971, he ran most of the races. Okay. So that would make sense or if he, he was ran... trying to pay off a debt, like you said. Yeah. And race car drivers statistically are shorter, smaller guys. So, and that's what the DB Cooper is smaller also. So it's like. I don't get how someone can just. I'm going to start driving a race car. Yep. Well, that's like, just- <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of guys, I mean, it was different back then. Yeah, yeah I different. guess that's true. But You know, it was a lot less expensive to get going and, you know, to have a, a cheaper race car. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Is this person still alive? Yeah. Is he on the... What? No, no, he's been out of, he's been out of any car for a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, so I thought that was interesting. Two, two interesting facts about his ownership. He hosted, he had the uh, second female to ever race in the Indy 500, Lynn St. James. And they also had a driver, um, Hideki Matsuda. No. God damn it. I can't remember his name. It was a Japanese driver. He was the first Japanese driver to drive in the 500. Hiro Mashusta. That was his name. He crashed in practice. 
and missed the race because he broke his leg. Well, the other interesting part about that is a piece of carbon fiber or suspension in the crash came up and Ooh. got him in the nuts. And he lost Ow. one of his testicles. Ah. That's, a, that's a little little known fact there for you. Thank you for that. Thanks. So I would say Dick Simon is just one of like a thousand men that okay, were thought so to be. It's just so many. But there is also another Indiana connection we'll get to later that I didn't know about until I was researching. And was but like, if it oh. wasn't for me. We wouldn't have started at all. I wouldn't right. have had my, my irrational. I don't know. It, just, don't know it's, it makes me feel very uneasy. That this is a possibility. So I can only really describe it as like it kind of scares me. I don't know. I think maybe it's because he looks like the Zodiac. I think the, the drawing He's, is part of it's, it. It's now haunting. Here's the know. thing, though. In 1970, Dick Simon was bald. This like guy he had already had lost all of his hair. So if it was a rug. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe. That he lost in the- Isn't the picture just- with the hat on? No. No, that's the Zodiac, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know. No, he's got glasses with like wavy hair, I feel like, but it's not a real, not Actually, a whole lot. But it just bothers me that they haven't found anything. Like I know. That's- Like they're saying maybe some pizza. Pe- oh, no, it shows him with hair. You're you're right. Yeah, it, but it, maybe he just shaved his head. It's just, the image is just kind of creepy Let me see to it me. again. I need some more of it. Yeah, yeah. He was just, kind of thing that that's just, what I do to get her off at night or to get her going. I'm like, here, here's the drawing of the zodiac. Uh, 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 uh. You put on a hat and sunglasses. A sketch. Uh, uh. Yes. And a trench coat. Uh, uh. Oh, she goes, I'll jump out of my plane, mister. <laughs> no. I'll get you your money. <laughs> the, all, man. So, yes, we can stop here and pick it back up because there's just so much more to keep going That's with. That makes me happy. We'll talk more about more of the suspects and all the people that were just like hijacking willy-nilly during that time period, too. Like, just all the time. All the time, people were hijacking planes. Yep. Damn. So, we'll talk right. about that. So, I think that's it. We have a live show. We have. I'll put in a link. $10. You come see us and a few other podcasters that I'll list as well. We're the Sideshow Ponies. Carla will be doing live butthole paintings. <laughs> we'll be suit. bringing Kansas, and, canvas yeah. and brown paint. Yes. In a suit. <laughs> Trying to think any other. Still not sure what we're going to talk about. It'll come to me. though. It will. I'll find it. Don't That's worry. what she said. <laughs> Tell them where to find us. Instagram, Twitter, at Hoosier Homicide. On Facebook, you can like us. You can message us. People do it all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I never respond. No, but. you don't. <laughs> I've got stickers I'm going to send out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's on the deck of things that are going to happen. And we have some we're gonna, Patreon stuff is going to come out. Re listened to part of one with Jody Aries. Uh, listen, it was recording porn. So people don't think that I was just, it was just porn, but it's their phone sex talks. That's the one I re listened to recently and didn't. Ew. Yeah, don't judge me. <laughs> I don't know they couldn't play it on HLN, so I needed to know what it was. <laughs> and now I know. <laughs> I got to know. <laughs> They're like, can we? Will the producers let us air the word jizz? <laughs> like, are I you trying to sound like Nancy know. Grace? <laughs> <laughs> like, keeps, she, she keeps saying the word jizz on the stand. We don't know if we can air it or not. <laughs> it's gross. There was, there's Casey Anthony. There's one with that bomb. There's a lot of the couples killing people. And what's another one? We did one with Hitler. Hitler's car that came to the U.S. after the war. We did one. That's an older yes. one. About the tro- one was a Trojan divorce. Indiana was the state to come to to get divorces. Like you could just roll them out. Like cool. so, people would come to get rid of their wives. 
an idiot. Cool. You're welcome. You're welcome for that. <laughs> and for honest to goodness, stay, stay out of the corn. corn. Off the plane. Stay on your plane. Stay on your plane. <laughs>